You are listening to the Rooted Ministry Podcast, a conversation advancing gospel-centered ministry to youth. This episode is audio from a plenary session at our 2018 conference in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about Rooted, visit our website at www.rootedministry.com. Good morning, saints. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you please meet me in Romans chapter 8. And a couple of things. I'm no longer on staff at TGC, though I love TGC. Uh, so uh, let me make that plain. But, I've, but uh, another thing is, I don't know whose idea it was to hold this conference on a football Saturday in the fall. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Cameron. <laughs> uh, I am delighted and honored to be here with you. Cameron, thank you. And to the rest of the Rooted team and staff, it's a joy to my heart to see so many caring about students in similar ways in which I have for a while. Um, Unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, hijinks that happen in student ministry. So to be among those in a room who consider biblical fidelity at the top of the list is a great joy. Romans chapter 8. This morning we'll be in verses 18 through 25. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. When you get there, say, oh, yeah. If you need a minute, say, hold up, brother. Fantastic. (laughs) Verse 8 reads, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, I'd like to preach a sermon entitled, Groaning Till Glory. And before considering this text, we should pray. Would you pray with me? O ancient of days, by the power of your mighty hand, would you strip away from us all incessant idols of self-reliance? Would you remove from us the the fallacy of self-dependence and restore unto us a sense of need? Guide us in that need, O thou great Jehovah, that we might not be enamored with the pontifications of a man or the theory or practice of men, but would we be enamored by the beauty of 
Jesus. Holy Spirit, you are the hand that pinned the words on these pages. Would you be our God and our interpreter this morning? We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's a great unfortunate task I have to follow Dr. Smith after yesterday. Uh, Doc is a mentor uh, and also the last person on the planet that I'd like to follow in preaching. (laughs) So this morning I shall give it my best. Last year, my grandmother died. And I'll never forget getting the call that she was in the hospital, and I knew there were only a few days left to see her, so I hopped in my car. I drove from Memphis to Birmingham, and I showed up to the hospital room to find an emaciated woman at about 87 pounds, lying in a bed hooked up to tubes. A ventilator steadily humming in the background. And I asked myself the question, God, why? This had been the woman who more or less had helped raise us. This was the woman who used to play football with us in the front yard and catch lightning bugs with us at night. And she was the woman who cooked three meals a day for 70 years. She's the woman who taught me some of my earliest memories about Jesus, and now she's relegated to a hospital bed. Why had she had to suffer? A dear sister of mine in Christ suffered from a chronic illness, and much like the woman with an issue of blood, she traveled from doctor to doctor seeking a reprieve, and she never got it. She would go to one doctor, they put her on medication, that medication wouldn't work. She'd go to another doctor, they put her on medication, it worked for a little bit, it would stop working. She'd go to another doctor, and on and on and on it went. And I'll never forget getting a call one morning, early on a Saturday, saying that she was going to take her life. And so I rushed over to her home, and there, sitting with her, she and another friend and I, we began to listen to her groans. Listen to her lament, listen to her asking, God, why me? In a conversation on suffering, I'm remembering in January of 2010 in Haiti, a 7.0 magnitude earthquake hit the country. And it's estimated that between 220 and 330,000 people died. That number doesn't seem real. But those are people with lives and hopes and dreams. Nearly half a million people gone. And in the comfort of my home here in the States, if I'm not quick to slow down to feel the gravity of the moment, I won't feel it. But in moments when I slow down and I think, about the magnitude of loss there in Haiti, I ask myself the question, why? There's a lot of shame tied to that question. We're often told that we're never supposed to ask God why, we're supposed to trust him. As my grandmama said, he may not come when you want him, but he'll be there on time. You're not supposed to ask God why, you're just supposed to live and trust that what he's got Playing for you is better. It's kind of like Chick-fil-A. 
As one commentator on Twitter said, even if Chick-fil-A gets my order wrong, I'm not mad because I trust they know what's best for me. <laughs> the question of why is something that we don't often think about, but when I come to Romans chapter 8, I think about The why. I think about why do we endure the storms of life? Why are your students walking through difficult situations? Why are we living in a time when truth with a lowercase t seems to be replaceable and determined by every individual looking at a situation with their own eyes? Why do we have so much hopelessness? Why is the rise of mental illness uh, at at rates we've never seen before in the history of our country? Why? within even our own selves? Do we constantly question, why am I doing this? Why am I waking up in the morning doing what I'm doing? Why? All of these things are very particular types of earthly storms designed by God for certain purposes in which we'll see here in Romans 8. Storms. That if weathered correctly, we might find something not only on the other side of them, but we might find something valuable in the midst of them. I'm still in my introduction, but I'm almost into the text. There was an old Navy captain who lived on a coast, and he's watching a man upon the encroaching storm lash his seaworthy vessel to a pier. This old Navy captain shakes his head and he runs out to the pier and he says, you fool, what are you doing? The guy looks at him and he says, I don't want my boat to drift off into the harbor, so I'm tying my boat to the pier. What else do you think I'm doing? And the Navy captain shakes his head. And he looks at him and he says, son, in the midst of a storm, you don't anchor your boat to the pier, you anchor your boat to the shore. Because that pier will break off, that pier will move, but the shore, it won't. Romans 8 is a charge for us to anchor our hope in the midst of storms to the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Wherein we find great value in the storm and hope in the storm, but also looking ahead to what lay beyond it. When we look at Romans 8, it's important for us to understand the context in which Paul is writing. He himself is writing to a people experiencing suffering. It seems to be a theme all throughout the New Testament. And if you are actually living a Christian life, it's the one thing you can be guaranteed of, suffering. And when I use that term, I want to be sure to define that term clearly for us. I'm using the term in the following way, that suffering is the experience of extraordinary physical and or emotional distress due to the consequences of living in a fallen world, including the consequences of one's own disobedience to God. I'm going to say that again. Suffering is the experience of extraordinary physical and or emotional distress due to the consequences of living in a fallen world, including the consequences of one's own disobedience to God. Here is the point of my sermon. Suffering exists as a divine tool 
to wean us off of the lower pleasures of this world and encourages us to persevere because we have hope. Now, that's pretty good if I do say so myself, so I'm going to say it twice more. (laughs) Suffering exists as a divine tool to wean us off of the lower pleasures of the world and encourages us to persevere because we have hope. Hope once more. Suffering exists as a divine tool to wean us off of the lower pleasures of the world and encourages us to persevere because we have hope. If it is this hope that we're anchored to, then we can expect storms to arise and we can anchor ourselves firmly to that rock so we don't get capsized. And so this text, I believe, shows us three primary things. The first is that suffering exists because there is greater glory to come. Uh, It's interesting, Paul appeals to the glory here in Romans 8 after walking through a theological treatise where he has to lay out the foundation for the depravity of man, sonship found in Abraham, a second and better and greater Adam, the, uh, the, the, the fallacy of sinning for sin's sake and resting and relying on grace, and also his own personal testimony and witness to the things he don't want to do, he'd do them anyway. I feel you, Paul. But in verse, in chapter 8, he comes and he offers great hope In the midst of that, and what is the hope? He says, in these present sufferings, they're not worth comparing. Now, this is interesting to me. Paul speaks of these present sufferings. And he wants us to know that these present sufferings don't compare to a coming glory. Why? There's that question. Why do our present sufferings not compare to a coming glory? It's because I believe that suffering is the path we tread as we move along the road from blessing to glory. Glory is what we can expect if we endure suffering. The splendor, the honor, the praise, the majesty of God. And what I really like is that this glory is revealed. This glory is not created. This glory is not something that is yet to come. This glory is not something we stumble upon. It is something that is revealed to us, which means this glory already exists, but it's not yet apparent. What am I getting at? There is a fullness to the glory of God, my friends, that we can expect to see that will make these present sufferings look like pebbles and rocks that we can't compare to the rock of the majesty of God. I'm reminded in Exodus 33, Moses asks what I believe to be the most audacious question in all of the Bible. And he asks, God, show me your glory. Yahweh, show me your glory. Kavod. And I'm reading that and I'm thinking like, man, Moses, you are a brave dude. Because what he's asking there is he's not just asking, hey, God, let me see you. After all, he had been in the midst of the epiphany of God on top of the mountain. He had witnessed the manifestation of God through lightning and smoke and pillar and fire. But now he's asking, essentially, God, I want to see the real you. Show me your glory. And God responds like, nah, brother, but I'm going to show you my goodness. 
Moses asked, let me see your glory. God says, I'll show you my goodness. Why? Because the glory of God is something that no man can see in full and live. This is the glory of God, I believe, that Paul has in mind here. It is the fullness of the glory of God. A fullness that we now perceive and yet we have yet to grab full hold of it. We know that God is good and gracious and merciful and wrathful and jealous and strong and mighty. We know those things, but we have yet to see his true self. And we will see that and know that when we see him face to face. One aspect of our suffering is the painful reality that we have yet to see God as he fully is. And the hope of heaven is a lifetime spent exploring that glory. When your students understand suffering and their trials and hardship against that backdrop and the fullness of God that awaits, they begin, hopefully, prayerfully, by the power of the Spirit, begin to see that earthly pleasures and pain are what they are, namely, not worth comparing. Suffering exists because there is a greater glory to come, and suffering exists, second point, because of the cosmic implications of the fall. In verses 20 through 22, Paul goes on and he starts talking about creation. And we, good theologians, understand that the subjection of creation to futility is a product of the gross disobedience of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. We are born into sin because of their sin. Separated from God, separated from one another, with grief within our hearts, work. Originally intended to be an act of worship and joyful is now hard and seldom enjoyable for many. Solomon understood this. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, arguably the wisest, wealthiest, most known person that's ever walked the face of the earth tells you that our toil... Our work, he says, it's worthless. He says it's vanity. That word in the Hebrew is the word hevel. And hevel is the word that signifies something that looks solid. But when you go to grab it, there's nothing there. It's like mist. You walk through the fog and you think it looks solid, you go to grab it, there's nothing there. It's like smoke. It looks solid, but when you go to grab it, there's nothing there. Work now becomes hevel. It looks like it'll bring satisfaction. It looks like it'll bring joy. It looks like it'll bring affirmation. But the closer you get to grabbing it, there's nothing there. Our own ministries that we believe will accomplish a great sense of worth and purpose in and of themselves are hevel. Why? Because of the fall. Childbirth, originally supposed to be a joyful, worshipful experience with praises to God for his great creation, now are replaced with screams and cries of, you did this to me. But God, in the fall, also cursed the ground. We call this ground beef. 
And when God cursed the ground, the soil would now fight the one seeking to utilize and harvest its fruit. Work becomes hard and unenjoyable. Do you dislike your job? Don't answer that question. I can tell you there are many days, having been in youth ministry for more than a decade, where I hate my job. No fruit. It seems like the ground you try to plow is fighting you back the whole time. You've got a sermon that's been pregnant in you for a long time. You deliver it knowing that God is going to move and you deliver it to lazy, wide open, gaping stairs. The one kid sleeping in the back and some kid on his phone not paying any attention to the hard work you put into it. It seems like even the work that we are doing in God's work to God's people seems to be heaven. And then you look outside and you see earthquake and tornadoes and hurricanes. I was just in Charleston, South Carolina a couple of weeks ago, and they were telling me about water in homes that were up to six feet high, homes that had been destroyed. I'm thinking about tsunamis that have just hit parts of our world and the people that are dying. Our planet is dying, people killing one another, all because of one act of pride and disobedience. And yet... Though creation is subjected to futility, we find that even creation has, in verse 20, hope. That even in the midst of a world in chaos, even in the midst of a world in futility, even in the midst of a world seeking to devour itself, all of non-human creation will be set free. And it'll be set free from being a slave to disorder, a slave to frustration, a slave to futility. And it will obtain the freedom, the same freedom that the sons and daughters of God will experience. Think about that. The same reasons we long to be with God are the same reasons creation longs to be with God. And the same joy that we eagerly long for is the same thing that creation longs for. And yet, even now, all of creation sighs and throbs with pain, and not just any pain, a purposeful pain. One of the things about childbirthing, child giving birth to children that I love, and one of the reasons I don't have to do it, is that every contraction is a reminder that you're progressing towards something. Every contraction, every shooting pain is a reminder that you're one step closer to something. That pain has perfect purpose. And for you and for your students, you need to understand that every act of suffering and discomfort, if you're a child of God, is purposeful, that is pushing us to somewhere. And we're one step closer to adoption as sons and daughters of God and the glory of God being revealed. Now, this is all good news. But then Paul, in verse 23, has a, but wait, there's more moment. I'm getting ready to take my seat, which is black preacher talk, for I got 20 more minutes. <laughs> Not really. But third, I think we can see in the rest of the chapter how suffering exists to lead us to hope. Paul has what I call a game show moment here. You're on a game show and you've just played a game. Let's call it Price is Right. You just won a prize, and all of a sudden, the guy whose face you never see comes over the loudspeaker and says, but wait, there's more. 
There's kind of a but wait, there's more moment here. Creation longs and groans and sighs and throbs. And then he says, but we too. We too groan and sigh and throb. And this groaning is due in part to the spirit of God revealing the extent of our sin and the incremental beauty of God's glory. We groan because of what's happening to us and we groan because of what's coming. Your students may groan chronic illness. They may groan abuse. They may groan death. But one of the things that I think that as creation is set free and as we ourselves attain this great inheritance, that redemption means that our groaning will give way to glory. That these broken bodies that get sick have aches and pains. I've had multiple concussions, broken bones, fingers, and I cannot wait to have a body where my knee and my back doesn't hurt. I cannot have, wait to have a body where I don't have strained arches every morning when I get out of bed and it feels like somebody's tapping knives into the soles of my feet. But more than anything, I can't wait to have a new body and new eyes by which we may see God. And ultimately, this leads us to hope. And then here's the word, hope. Now, what is hope? Hope is borrowing the joy of tomorrow today. Uh, Hope is looking ahead in the future, as my brother said earlier, and borrowing the joy of that day in the midst of our present suffering. It's as children of God to look ahead and see God there in a new body where our faith will be made sight. When all things that are sad become untrue and we borrow that hope Today, Uh, we borrow the hope of when groaning of suffering ceases, when our bodies don't hurt, when mental illness is in the rear view, but not only is in the rear view, it's destroyed. And where heartache and heartbreak, because every 13 and 14 year old that breaks up with their significant other is heartbroken, when heartbreak will be replaced with an endless supply of contentment, we have hope. My friends, this is what we wait for. This is the thing that Paul says in verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I love this. Your students are dying to find something that's real. They're dying to believe in something they can see. There's only one problem. The eyeballs by which they're trying to determine the legitimacy of God does not come from within them. It comes from God. Those eyeballs are faith. How can you instill faith in your students is to push them to hope. You see, I love this because the hope that I have is that one day Jesus Christ is going to crack that sky like an eggshell and that he's going to forcefully insert himself into the scope of human history, erupting, as Dr. Smith likes to say, not erupt, erupt, E-R-R-U-P-T. That is a breaking from inside out to erupt, I-R-R-U-P-T is a breaking in. That Christ will break into the line of human history, will set havoc and chaos to all things, and there he will make all things new. I love the scene of Jesus at Lazarus's grave because Jesus stands before the grave of a dead man and says, Lazarus, come forth. And I love the fact that he has to say, Lazarus, come forth, because if he just says, come forth, all hell is breaking loose. 
And the one who came as a lamb first, led to the slaughter without opening his mouth, he doesn't say a word, will come as a lion next. And to borrow a phrase from Dr. Spurgeon, baby, you don't negotiate with a lion. You see, here is our hope that in our suffering, that in our pain, that in the effects of living in a fallen world, we are not without hope. We don't mourn without hope. We don't grieve without hope. We don't celebrate without hope because our present sufferings cannot compare to the full revelation of the glory of God in the person of Christ Jesus. And there, there, in the presence of God, it will be made clear That our whole life, God uses suffering to prune things out of us or download things into us to conform us further into the image of Jesus. And so we wait. Now, I I, I don't have a good temperament to wait. I want stuff right now. But Paul says, wait with patience. Paul, this is kind of hard for me to understand. Do you not know that every day, Paul, I'm on the precipice of belief and unbelief? Do you not know that our students are on the precipice of belief and unbelief? Do you not know that many that we minister to are on the precipice of belief and unbelief? How can we wait? How do you tell us to wait when it feels like our students are dropping like flies, that their faith is being ripped away from them? I want to remind you of something that Paul says. He says, we are those with the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, whenever I think about the first fruits of the Spirit, I think about spades. Growing up, we played spades. White people play hearts. It's the same concept. (laughs) But in spades, what we would do is we would take out the two of diamonds and we would put in the two of spades. So you had four trump cards. You had the big joker the little joker, the two of spades, and the ace of spades. And in succession, all four of those cards served as trump cards, with the biggest trump card being the big joker. And the reason why it was the big joker is because that card had the guarantee written on it, which meant that that card was a guaranteed book, that no matter what else was played throughout the course of that game, that card secured that that book would be won. It was guaranteed. And when the Spirit of God comes into us providing the first fruits, meaning there's fullness even of the Spirit that we're going to get when we stay before the Lord, and that's a whole other sermon for another time. But what this means is that when the Spirit of God imbibes us and comes inside of us, He now provides the guarantee of our inheritance. And in the guarantee of our inheritance, He will do the work of causing us to wait patiently. In short, he will hold us fast. In our ministries, friends, the suffering exists as a divine tool to wean us off of the lower pleasures of this world. And this becomes a glorious adventure when the anchor of your student's soul is tied to the hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your word. Father, forgive me when I fail to have this sort of hope. Spirit of God, would you continue to lead me? Hold me. Confirm and affirm within me the very thing that you downloaded upon my confession of the supremacy of Christ that one day we will with new eyes Behold, the full glory of God. Would you encourage us to persevere 
despite our hardship, Father, and that there we would find great hope, that there we find patience, but mostly there we find joy. Lord, we love you. It's your great name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Rooted Podcast, where we hope to communicate the truths of the gospel and apply those truths to youth ministry. We would love for you to check out our website where we publish articles daily geared towards both youth ministers and parents. You will also find resources and more information about our conferences, regional events, and more at www.rootedministry.com.